Well, it's good. Oops. It's good to be here. Um, the last time I spoke from here, there was nobody in the place. And so it was vacant. And now I've got all your faces. And they're not vacant, I hope. Okay. I've always believed God has a plan for Israel. I've always believed in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul talks about how, you know, Israel is going to be restored. And I've always prayed for the peace of Israel. But last night, to use a Glasgow phrase, it all went out the windy. <laughs> because who watched the game? Yes. And all this lovely spiritual stuff. I was going, he's an animal, kick him, you know, that kind of thing. And it was amazing. And I don't know if you, if you watched it, you'll know that Scotland, as usual, took us to the brink. And if, if crisis and suffering made a, a country mature, then Scotland would be the most mature country in the world because of the football. But in the, what was it, 94th minute, Scotland scored. And, but I managed to recover. I still believe God has a plan for Israel. But it's not that they go to the World Cup. <laughs> anyway, I want to read from a book. It was written in 1937. It was probably, how could you put it? It was probably one of the most influential books in American culture for about 20, 30 years. Called Simply Think and Grow Rich by a man called Napoleon Hill. Now, I'm going to just read something from it, then I'm going to link it up, because I've always believed that the Bible is rooted in human experience. That's why it's important for us to read it, because essentially we're reading ourselves just in a different context. And what this man did was he interviewed at his time 50 or people related to 50 of the most successful men in American society. Just how they managed to, to, to become successful. Most of them were millionaires, billionaires. It would be the equivalent of the, the Bill Gates, the equivalent of the Bessos, you know, the Amazon guy. It would be equivalent of them watching how they, they did it. And I, I love the book simply because it's full of incredible stories. For instance, and I'm not going to read it, but if I asked you about a gunman named Asa Griggs Candler, most of you would never have heard of him. But Candler was a clerk who had $500 that he saved up. And he met a doctor come chemist who was skint and in debt. And the dentist, the, dent the chemist wanted to sell him a big paddle and a big kettle where he could make stuff. And you know, like the moonshine in America, right? And a recipe. And everybody said to China, you're daft. Or the American equivalent. Fancy doing that. But he spent all his life savings because he bought into an idea few years later, he opened up a little factory and he gave the name of the drink. He called it Coca-Cola. <laughs> Unbelievable. Everybody said, oh, you're an idiot. Fancy spending all that money. But he bought into an idea 
That was quite important. He bought into something. It was more than that. It was just a, an old kettle that he kept, big, big drum thing, and a paddle, and that was the thing he always looked at. And, and it's stories like that. But I want to read to you, and this is important for our subject when I go on just to look at the Apostle Paul and Silas who are in prison. It's a, a man called Darby, and the background to his story is very simple. He had an, aunt, an uncle who got caught up in the gold rush in the 19th century in America. And he, he, he staked a claim, and he found a vein of gold. Right. And he came back to the family and said, look, I've got this. And he incorporated his nephew was this man called Darby. Are you Darby? And he got him to buy in to his idea. And so Darby, the young Darby, right, he, he spent a lot of money buying machinery, borrowing money from relatives, everybody, to buy stuff so that they could mine the gold. And I want to read to you what happened in the whole story, right? Honestly, I find it quite, quite challenging. It says, down went the drills, up went the hopes of Darby and Uncle. Then something happened. The, gold, the vein of gold disappeared. Now, they'd been bringing out gold, and they thought, all oh, right, we've really struck it. And then suddenly, it all vanished. They had come to the end of the rainbow, and the pot of gold was no longer there. They drilled on, desperately trying to pick up the vein again, all to no avail. Finally, they decided to quit. Right. They spent all this money, all the labor, all the dreams, and everything came crashing down. They sold the machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. Some junk men are dumb, but not this one. He called in a mining engineer to look at the mine and do a little calculating. The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners, that's Darby and his uncle, were not familiar with fault lines. His calculations showed that the vein would be found just, listen to this, three feet, three feet from where the Darbys had stopped drilling. Now, a meter for those, I'm, I'm old enough, I'm still thinking imperial feet and inches, but three feet, a meter away almost, from where the goal was, and they stopped. <gasps> I, that's, oh dear, eh? that's frightening. Well, what happened? And this is exactly where it was found. The junk man took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. Most of the money that went into the machinery was procured through the efforts of R.U. Darby, that's the young bloke, who was then a very young man. The money came from his relatives and neighbors because of their faith in him. He paid back every dollar of it, although he was years in doing it. Long afterwards, Mr. Darby recouped his loss many times over when he made the discovery that desire can be transmuted into gold. The discovery came after he went into business selling life insurance. He became a multimillionaire. 
right? The man who stopped three feet from the gold. Remembering that he had lost a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold, Darby profited from the experience, saying to himself, I stopped three feet from gold, but I will never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. Darby is one of a small group of fewer than 50 men who sell more than a million dollars in life insurance annually. He owes his, now listen to this little phrase, his stickability to the lesson he learned from his quitability. Stickability because he experienced quitability. And, and Pill goes on to make this comment. Before success came into any man's life, he is sure to meet temporary defeat and perhaps failure. When defeat overtakes a man, the easiest and most logical thing to do is quit. That is exactly what the majority of men, and he's right, 37, so we would have included people that if we were writing it now, men and women. More than 500 of the most successful men in this country has ever known told the author their greatest success came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. That's quite challenging, isn't it? I think I've commented before, but one of the things that always used to bother me before I became a Christian was if I was in the pub, I was in a social club with my friends, we'd always get talking to a lot of the old boys. And without fail, most of them, after that, a wee drink in them, would begin to reminisce, and they would all have the same story. They would say, you know, son, I could have. And then they would tell us a wee story about where they were like, you know, Derby, where, you know, they, they had a chance to do something with their lives and wish they didn't. And what frightens me is I, I hear myself saying the same thing at times. <laughs> right? I look back in my own life. Now, fortunately, I think there are only wee things but, you know, when I was 15, I had a chance to go skiing with the school up, up in, in Edinburgh, a place called the Pentland Hills. It was the first place in Scotland they ever opened a skiing thing. And I was at the school just down the bottom of it. And I could have gone, I could have been, ah, I can't be bothered. And I look back now and think, what, what did I do? But, you know, this giving up is a common feature and it, and it applies to us as well as Christians. It applies to when God has given you dreams and given you promises. And they just don't quite work out. And without realizing it, lots of Christians give up. And they're only three feet from the gold. You think about your life, and not just in the, the spiritual of praying. Think about in family life where, you know, all of us have families. You know, somebody once said to me, I want the church to be like a family. And I said, have you ever lived in one? <laughs> well, you know what it's like. 
Well, you may be praying for somebody who's a member of the family or something's gone wrong and you're working with them and you just think, oh, this is a waste of time. Remember what Darby said, his stickability came because he gave up. He gave up. And in that passage that, that Felipe read for me, it, it's the same thing. Paul and Silas are at a place now where they're three feet from gold. <laughs> they don't realize that this is a problem. Now, what's happened in a wee background to what Philippa read, simple. Paul and his Silas and some of the other people, that they're going to preach the gospel. And Paul wants to go into a place called Bithynia. The Holy Spirit says no, because he wants Paul somewhere else. First Peter eventually writes a letter to the church and to Christians in Bithynia. So God's got all in control. Paul instead goes to bed, has a dream or a vision, whatever it was, of a man from Greece, a man from Macedonia saying, come over. And they talked about the dream after he woke up, talked about everything, and they concluded they were to go to Greece to preach the gospel. So they come to this little place called Philippi. God said, here's a man saying, come over. And this is important to understand if you, God gives you dreams or God gives you visions or a real sense of something, that Paul didn't meet a man, he met a woman. I met a woman called Lydia, and this woman, Lydia, listened to Paul, and it's a lovely phrase. It said, the Lord opened her heart, and she became a Christian, and she became a, a real leader in the church. And so Paul here, he's been, he's been just obeying what God has been saying to him. He's been following the leads, the breadcrumbs, whatever, and, and he's there. And they're starting a church, and he's going, as Philippi started to read, they're going to the place of prayer to just be together. And there's this girl who's occultish, and she's got a spirit of divination. Now, the Greek word is python. She's got a spirit of python. What does a python do? It constricts, and it squeezes life out of its victim. And that's one of the, the real ministries of the enemy against us as people. That the spirit of Python, it squeezes us. It squeezes us to the point where we just want to give up. So Paul and Silas, Paul, interestingly enough, Paul doesn't deliver the woman immediately. Notice that. It goes on for days. Because I think Paul has a real inkling here. If I step out here, all hell could literally break loose. And so what happens is, that he, he, he holds back and then suddenly he gets fed up. Now, whether he was led by spirit or he was just simply annoyed. You ever get annoyed as a Christian? Yeah? You ever get annoyed and you open your mouth? Oh, Paul just he, he rebuked the spirit. And what happens? They're taken before the magistrates. Paul's battered. He's whipped. Silas as well. They're taken to the prison. They're not just taken to prison. Notice they're put into the deepest dungeon. The deepest dungeon. And they're put in stocks. And literally, well, I would assume at that moment in time, it's painful. 
They're aching. The last thing in their mind at that moment is maybe what's God doing? Because if your back's bleeding after you've been, you know, punished, and if you're sitting in stocks in a deep dungeon, smelly everything with all the usual stuff that goes along, the last thing that Paul and Silas are at that moment in time are happy clappy. <laughs> it's the last thing they are. And you think about it. Think of yourself in that situation. How would you, how would you be? Well, you'd be discouraged. Yeah. You'd be a questioning. You'd be at that place. But as I said, one of the things that, that Paul and Silas, when they go in, they don't realize they're actually three feet away from the gold. And that's what I'm saying about the Bible being rooted, being rooted in human experience. These guys were, were, were aching, you know, they didn't curse God. That's all I know. But I think they must have had thoughts towards, you know, the, the girl, thoughts towards the, the, the jailer, everybody in that. And what happens is they're surrounded by people, because I'm going to read the next part, and something's happening and all the other prisoners hear them and listen to them. And you can think about all the people who were surrounding. Remember I told you about Candler, that, that people said, oh, you're daft. You're off your head. And sometimes to believe God for your family, to believe God for your life, to believe God that God can come through, sometimes you're going to be taken to that place where it's, it's like a dungeon, where the spirit of Python finally has you in a sense. The spirit of Python captures you, squeezes you, and simply wants to squeeze life out of you. Been there? Yeah? Yes? Speak to me. Yes? Nod? You know what it's like? Yeah? They've been pushed to a point where you really want to do, oh, I've had enough. And you're faced with this terrible thing that we call failure. <laughs> and that's hard. I'm thankful that way back early on, just before I, I began ministry in that, I had a, a, a terrible time of, of failure. And I'm always thankful for that now. At the time, I wasn't. It was agony, but I was thankful for that. Because what I learned is that all you, if you fail, all that happens is you fail. One of my favorite quotes from Shakespeare, um, when I left engineering to go into ministry, I had to go to night school for three nights a week. And I, I did English, and we did Macbeth. Then I went to further education college to do hires, and then I had to do English, and guess what they were teaching on? Macbeth. Then I, went, then I had to spend another year, and I saw I'll do A-level English. Guess what they taught? It was Macbeth. So I really got the idea I was going to learn something here, but there's a scene where Macbeth is going to kill King Duncan. I don't know if you know the story, Macbeth. Macbeth's a wonderful story of how, how a man who's quite a lot of integrity can, can easily be so seduced by power and, and end up being really the villain, being terrible. And, and Shakespeare creates that whole thing in Macbeth. But Macbeth and his wife are going to kill King Duncan. 
And, and Macbeth's having second thoughts, and he's really beginning to panic. And then what happens is, there's a lovely little phrase, Macbeth says to his wife, I, I just wrote it down to, to make sure that I, I, I've got it, I've got it right, that, that I'll get it here. She just says simply, what will we do if we fail? And Lady Macbeth says, we fail. That's a wonderful philosophy, isn't it? Yes. Am I the only one who thinks it is? I've survived with it. It's helped me to understand that I can step out and I can fail and it's not the end of the world. You've maybe failed in areas. I, I don't know. I'm laboring this week, but there maybe are some of us here who have really failed, feel a failure, etc., etc. Well, that's a lovely kind of thing to, to, to embrace. What happens, even in God, in Christ, if you fail, what happens? You fail. If you can get that, it'll deliver you. It'll deliver you from this web that we all tend to weave, which is full of excuses why we don't do things, why things just fall apart, you know, why we, we hide behind the web with excuses because ultimately we're frightened of failure. Well, Paul and Silas, at this moment in time, three feet from the gold, you know, they're there to preach your gospel. They're there to bring Philippi to Christ. They're sitting in a prison, dark and dingy, in stocks. And the last thing they feel, I think, is successful. But I'll take up the story. If you've got your Bibles, it's verse 25 of chapter 16. And it just says this, because something happens to them. And I've not got time to go in maybe the time frame, but there'd be a time where, in a sense, their hands would be clasped, just angry or discouraged, painful, etc. But eventually they move from that experience to one of worshipping God. It says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And notice the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, 
Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens because they couldn't really do that. That was illegal and under Roman law. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Two lovely little phrases, or two phrases I want us to, if you remember anything from today, remember the three feet from the gold, right? Remember that phrase. But here's another lovely little biblical phrase. About midnight. In our calendar, you know, midnight separates the old day from the new day. And in Christ, in God, when you're in the prison, when the things that you believe for are not actually working, and you're three feet from the gold, you want to give up, yet you're ready to kind of just say, that's enough, I'm giving up. Remember, the equivalent biblically is this little phrase, about midnight. And it's quite interesting that, that that's the phrase used because about midnight, reality changes. They're beaten, right? They're defeated. They're in prison. They're victims of other people who have the authority and power. But they start to pray. And notice this, they start to worship God. Start to worship them. Start believing and saying and singing, whatever the words you use, that God was in control and that God has his reality for this city. And that reality, and it comes to about, there's going to be a church in Philippi and they're going to be, Paul one day will be writing to them the letter to the Philippians, telling them to keep going and all about being in prison and things like that. Paul has to come to the point, along with Silas, they believe God, that God is going to do it. Right? The stickability because they've given up. Right? And about midnight, reality changes. I don't know what Paul's attitude to the jailer was, but as he was being, and I assume the jailer would have been a coarse man. I assume he would be merciless. I'm sure he's cynical and everything. And I'm sure he just bunged them in. Couldn't care a toss about cuts in their back or anything. I don't know what Paul felt about this man. But you know, once about midnight came, once he'd moved the three feet and hit the gold, <laughs> Paul's baptizing the man. 
Paul's sitting at his table, and they're all having a meal together. The man who could easily have been seen in Paul's life as an enemy suddenly becomes a brother in Christ, suddenly becomes somebody. And as I was praying this, and I just wanted to throw it out, perhaps you've got some people in your work who are driving you bammy, right? And I've been there, I know the kind of folk who, you know, they're able to push you, you know, to the limit. You might have folk in your work doing that. You might have family members, right, who have this wonderful ability to just look at you, open their mouth, and they drive you up the wall for no reason whatsoever. Yes, am I the only, tell me, look at me. I can't see your faces because, but am I the only person in this room who has, who lives with this kind of thing in life? People who can, right, am I? And the thing about it is, it's interesting. When about midnight came for Paul, this very man becomes a brother. It's really, when you think about it, it's really exciting. All this is happening in the space of hours. People who you were so distant, suddenly you've all become brothers in Christ. And you're sitting having a meal. And he's telling them all about Jesus. But not only that, not only that changes, but notice the other reality changes, the social reality. Because you see, Paul was a Roman citizen, and the magistrates had no right to beat him. You can't do that, because, you know, if you're a Roman citizen, wherever you were in the empire, there were certain rules governing what people could do to you. If you harmed the, the, the Roman citizen, if in fact you were harming Rome itself, the emperor, etc., etc. And so, what does Paul do? Paul stands his ground, and even the social side begins to change. Think about it, really, is, these guys are controlling the city, and they're Anti-Paul, want rid of him, get rid of him. But suddenly, because about midnight comes, because the gold has been struck, because it worked through that three feet, then suddenly even the very structures change and have to listen to him. And in fact, they have to pay them. And suddenly... Rather than fear being on Paul, and fear was on the structure and on those who are within the structure. Hey, we have to do something here. So you can see how Acts 16 is an incredible story of the birth of the church in Philippi. But it's birthed ultimately because there was this period of about midnight where there were hours prior to that midnight where it's painful, and I've used words, use them again, discouraging. It was periods where really could easily have given up. But about midnight came. And I want to give you that really for your, your life personally. Because, you know, that we, we all go through periods where, you know, we really, we find it hard with our own lives and we have promises from God 
And we know and we read the Bible what God wants to do with us and do through us and how God wants to draw us deep into his life. And yet, you know, we're, we're, we're the three feet from the gold. The scriptures give us and show us there's the gold. But if you're three feet from it, it's very easy after all the toil and all the stuff to simply give up. But many of you are probably just that three feet. And so I just encourage you personally to think these words, three feet from the gold, and Lord, when I start to worship and go for it with you, it's about midnight. Reality changes. Perhaps you've got struggles within your own family life. Then again, it's the same thing with your family and everything. Lord, it's a mess, but there's gold. And you want to give the gold. And you want an about midnight for my family. And so even though I don't feel like it, and even though it's painful, I'm going to start worshiping you. I'm going to start praising you. I'm going to start, I'm just going to do it because I've got nothing else. And perhaps it's in the whole area of work life, whatever, whatever area, again, it's the same thing. Think of yourself, I'm only three feet from gold. I'm only maybe 10 minutes from about midnight. But I'm going to go for it. Yes, yes, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to be one of the people at the end of my life saying to a young person, you know, I could have. <laughs> at the end of your life, you want to say to the young person, you know, I could have given up, but I kept going. I struck gold, and about midnight happened for me. Make that your goal. And in this coming week, could I encourage you, read Acts 16. Read the story again and again this week. Let's pray together. And just in the quietness now, let's simply, all of us have the areas in our own life where we feel we're not quite there yet, not quite struck the gold, but we're close. Just bring them to the Father now. Bring your family, bring yourself, bring your work situations, bring everything to him. And just ask simply for that grace to come, and that grace to touch us, and that grace that just carries us the three feet. That grace that takes us to about midnight. And so, Father, we would now simply give this to you. You know where we've given up. You know where the promises are. Father, I would simply pray for each one of us that today in our personal life, 
today in our family life, today in the whole social life, we draw a line and we say now, no more. From now on, it's three feet to the gold and it's a few minutes to about midnight. And so we would pray for ourselves we pray for one another and we pray for this area. Lord, bring just your presence among us. And I pray for this church, Sandy Hills, and I ask simply that you would raise us up truly to become a place where the presence of Jesus is known. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing our, our final song and it, and it wasn't